I'm Todd Dills, and in this week's edition of the Overdrive Radio Podcast, we take a run through Hurricane Michael's devastating effects on the Florida Panhandle, north through clear to Albany, Georgia, where 100 mile per hour plus winds persisted in the fast moving storm well after landfall. With all the devastation, for some owner operators, new opportunities arise, as regular listeners and readers of Overdrive well know. More than a year ago, we talked with Landstar leased owner op Bill Ader about his involvement in a myriad of relief efforts over the years, including frontline shuttle operations like the one Florida based independent Tim Philman contracted to in the wake of the most recent hurricane to hit the U.S. mainland via a brokerage with a FEMA contract. The bulk of the podcast is devoted to Philman's operation. But before we get there, I checked in with fellow Overdrive senior editor James Gillette, who split some of his time with our sister fleet news publication, CCJ. Gillette gives a close look into the American Trucking Association's regulatory and legislative agenda. He's just off a reporting trip to the association's annual management conference and exhibition. And his thoughts, I figured, might well give us a little window into the fleet interest group that's loomed large in the imagination of many an owner-operator over the long run, reaching the size of an 800-pound gorilla, one might say, during all the advocacy machinations around the ELD mandate. Since the ATA and its relatively new president and CEO, Chris Spear, took what many saw, uh, many saw as something of a noxious victory lap uh, around the ELD mandate last year, the tone has moderated a bit. The ATA, for instance, is on the record in support of a move toward more flexibility in the hours of service rule, though details are sparse. Here's Gillette in response to my question about whether the dearth of specifics from them about hours was the reality as it so far appeared from the outside. I will say that Chris Beard did uh, talk about it uh, as one of his main points when he gave the State of the Industry address in front of all the ATA members that were in attendance. Uh, he did not mention any specifics as far as what ATA uh, would be advocating for, and nor did ATA in their comments that were filed, um, only that they support uh, hours of service flexibility, not necessarily how to get there. Um, but Spear did outline it as something that they uh, intend to continue to push for, you know, in the coming months and years. And, uh, you know, he, like a lot of others, he sort of applauded, um, or, or I think as he put it, commended uh, Administrator Martinez for sort of wanting to hear the industry out on the issue and try to take action on it. But uh, he did he did mention it as one of his chief points um, as far as ATA's agenda. Interesting how uh, like they, they, they're not really going into the specifics, right? Like um, there's so many owner operators out there uh, have very specific ideas about, about things that could be done. Um, and you know you've got uh, the whole thing is kind of being being led uh, by by drivers um, you know, from my point of view, and and that's kind of a point that uh, uh, the good folks over at uh, Trucker Trucker Nation and uh, the Owner Operator Independent Drivers Association too, for that matter, have kind of hammered on, and um, you know particularly Trucker Nation, and um, I wonder if uh, if this is if it's something that uh, the ATA <laughs> And Chris Spear in particular have uh, sort of come to uh, a, a sort of a, a point of, of of living with, you know, or or or, or uh, resign themselves 
process being uh, in some ways uh, led by drivers, or at least in in, in the public space of it, uh, led by drivers, and uh, they're kind of hanging back, not offering a whole lot of uh, viewpoint other than to say that uh, they're in support of, of some change, right? I wholly agree with that part. That ATA is not, uh, at least publicly, doesn't isn't saying anything uh, about what they would like to see from an hours of service uh, revamp, so to speak. But you know, they did get the big win with the ELD mandate, and they fought hard to keep that in place. So I think kind of their stance now is okay. Well, we have ELD, so maybe we can look at data and um, and try to weigh some hours of service changes. Um, on the flip side of that, ATRI, which, which works on behalf of ATA in many ways, has advocated and did advocate at their show this week that, you know, if you, particularly around urban areas, that the driver can sort of pause uh, the 14-hour clock or at least take a, a multi-hour break that doesn't count against their on-duty or drive time, they could better deal with, uh, with congestion around urban areas. And they pointed to that study that they did around Atlanta where if drivers could stop at certain points during the day, let rush hour kind of get flushed out. They could uh, you know, make a lot better use of their time, uh, spend less time sitting in traffic, uh, that type of thing. When James Gillette refers to Atri, he's making reference, of course, to the American Transportation Research Institute, the nonprofit arm of the American Trucking Association is dedicated to research that can potentially undergird regulatory or legislative change. The particular case study he's referring to was published in late August. The case analysis does seem to underpin a conclusion that the ability to pause the ticking 14-hour clock may well result in better time use efficiency for, for truck operators, though it makes no safety claims. You can find a news report about it by searching Sleep Studies, Atri, that's A-T-R-I, at overdriveonline.com. Gillette went on about some of the signals we can glean from public-facing advocacy, or lack thereof, from the American Trucking Associations around hours of service reform. However, I'll also say that while ATA may not be publicly advocating for any specific changes, only, you know, the broad need for flexibility, you know, they're not taking the route of OIDA in terms of saying, well, here's here's an actual plan or an idea, and Truck Nation also has put forth an idea, as have many drivers and owner-operators. But you have to, I think you have to think that ATA is definitely working behind the scenes more so than publicly. That would be my hypothesis. I don't necessarily have anything to support that, and I haven't talked to anyone at ATA about that. But, you know, that's kind of one of their big MOs is, is working behind the scenes with uh, lawmakers, or in this sense, it would be regulators to, um, you know, try to squeeze what they want out of it. Uh, but, you know, given that there are so many different stakeholders at the table on hours of service, that they would be, at this point, one of a lot of voices and maybe... Yep. I'm sure that, uh, I know that this is kind of the thing that everybody wants to wants to see, right? Like, uh, how is this... How exactly is this going to all shake out? And I guess um, I guess we've got nothing but uh, time in front of us there. <laughs> yeah, and you know, ATA is response is is supposed to be um, acting on behalf of its members, and you have to think that some of the a lot of its members anyway are advocates of some type of hours of service reforms, particularly a lot of the smaller ATA members. You know, maybe not the giant. I don't know where the giant mega fleets stand on 
uh, hours of service reform, but you got to think a lot of the smaller ATA members, even those with only a couple of hundred or, or a hundred trucks or fewer would, um, would be no. some type of advocate for hours of service flexibility. You got to feel that, uh, you know, even, even the largest companies, uh, uh, do make, make an effort. Management makes an effort to, uh, understand uh, their driver's point of view on this and, uh, Sure. And you know there are there are some voices among drivers who sort of stick a stick a sort of line in the sand and uh, you know don't want uh, uh, you know any more available work hours because they don't want to be pushed uh, any more than they already are. But at the same time, uh, a, a lot of them would just I know the the whole the whole notion of being able to split uh, periods of off off duty periods and on duty periods. Uh, more flexibly is is pretty widely uh, uh, widely supported uh, among drivers, and I don't know. You you feel that's got to kind of trickle up from the bottom, right? Uh, even even with these uh, these large fleets. Some interesting points at this at this show this weekend that, uh, that Bob Costello from ATA made, as well as some others at uh, at FDR conference a couple about a month ago, was that the with the ELD mandate taking place and then suddenly this economic boom that is really, it's eased up a little bit, but it caused such a uh, trucking capacity issue that I think fleets are actually looking at hours of service as a way to try to, you know, just make better use of their, their equipment and, and their driver's time as far as being able to meet the demands of, of the shipper customers. So, you know, it's, I think it's, it's both a, a life issue and obviously a big economic issue for all parties involved, carriers and, and drivers, obviously. Maybe hey, we're going to have like a little, little kumbaya moment between, uh, <laughs> uh, between, uh, the guy who, uh, you know, sort of derisively, uh, referred to, you know, a lot of the sort of grassroots groups that are kind of sprung up protesting ELD mandate is a bunch of, uh, bunch of amateurs, right? And, and and that crowd, I, you know, I, I think back to that, and uh, and I know a lot of operators out there think back to that recently because some of the news coming out of uh, out of ATA is that uh, I think Spear maybe in his you mentioned his speech at the at the conference, and uh, he I think maybe it was part of that where he he mentioned uh, an effort to actually um, create some some kind of a uh, independent contractor uh, uh, ambassador board. It sounds to me something similar uh, to be something similar to the America's Road Team of drivers that they have in place now, uh, but uh, solely uh, focused on independent contractor owner operators. I'm guessing uh, uh, guys that are leased to uh, member companies. Uh, one of the headlines that came out of that was something like. Uh, ATA plans to advocate for owner operators or something, or independent owner operators or something like that. But uh, a little bit of a glossing over of some of the specifics. But apparently there weren't very many specifics. I was wondering if if you heard anything uh, uh, further about that uh, at the at the show. Spear did not offer many specifics when he brought that up. Um, but okay. uh, given given the context of of it, I think I can shed a little light on their motives behind it. So. Yeah, it's a, your thoughts uh, about it being a, uh, a like sort of a similar branch or a similar group as the uh, America's Road Team captains. Um, yeah, it sounded exactly like a group like that that would do the same thing, kind of go around and sort of quote unquote represent uh, 
owner operator or, or at least independent uh, rep, um, interest to, you know, media and policy makers and the like. That's the, uh, that's the fancy jargon for it. But the context that he put it in was uh, about states taking action on like uh, driver classification issues, which has been a big issue okay. for, a for ATA the last couple of years, you know, particularly in California. Um, where, you know, they just, the state Supreme Court had the ruling earlier this year that some groups have said will effectively end the owner-operator model in the state um, uh, because of the way that, that carriers are supposed to treat them as employees now, and it sort of undermines the whole um, idea behind uh, using uh, owner-operators to, to, you know, in addition to company drivers. And so that's, that's I think, was, was ATA's Sort of the genesis behind this yeah. was was the driver classification issue more so than like a um, like a, an advocacy for owner operator interests at large, if that makes sense. And this was the first time, to my knowledge, I guess that any of us have had any uh, personal, or, you know, in in the same room kind of uh, contact with uh, Spear since he became uh, uh, head of uh, a president ATA over there. Uh, what, I was wondering if you got a uh, got a general impression of the guy. Uh, you know, I, uh, we, can, we can only glean so much from reports out there. What, uh, how does he uh, compare to, you know, what you know about prior uh, heads of that, that group there? When they brought Spear on as as their uh, president and CEO, the group sort of was pivoting at least slightly to a more aggressive lobbying stance. And I think they sure. even put out, put out information when they hired him about that, that, you know, we're, we're going to, you know, fight harder for our, uh, for what we, for our agenda items, so to speak in Washington now. And, and, and Chris Spear was a professional lobbyist. I don't think he had many ties to the trucking industry at all. Um, and uh, he is a different type of guy than, than, than Bill Graves was. When he was, when I, the few times I got to see him speak, he was very um, amicable. And, and measured, well, measured in his uh, yeah. rhetoric, right? You know, yeah. yeah, very measured guy. Just wanted to, to really... Um, make people more of a, I would say more of an industry advocate that he, he, and obviously ATA has always been a lobbyist, but, um, he was very much sort of a, and making, I mean, putting a lot behind the image side of ATA and I never saw him be aggressive or anything like that. But Spear, when he gave a state of the industry speech the other day was very much a, um, took a very aggressive tone on, on what they want to accomplish uh, at ATA in terms of the regulatory and legislative items that they're looking at. And, um, you know, you'd almost have to listen and watch the speech to get a feel for what I'm talking about. But he, he uh, very much so was a uh, put on a, like his boxing gloves kind of. And, at the same time, Gillette noted he didn't hear a lot in the agenda Spear laid out that a lot of owner-operators and small fleets who categorically, uh, would categorically object to. From the hours of service flexibility push we talked about earlier to infrastructure funding based on fuel tax. 
and a push against truck only tools, which Elida is making as well. Where it gets a little more thorny is in ATA's push toward allowances for under 21 interstate commercial drivers and the state and federal conflicts between wage and hour and employment law. The latter conflicts, of course, often talked about in driver's circles with the denim amendment shorthand or as the owner-operator classification issue, are particularly complex. James has a blog post that outlines both on overdriveonline.com today. Those issues seem to surround the ATA's idea to develop an independent contractor group, particularly the classification issue in California. In any case, let's now pivot to my talk this week with independent owner-operator Tim Philman, resident of Florida, relatively near Jacksonville, as you'll hear him tell. When Hurricane Michael made landfall two weeks ago, Philman was on his way through his home state along the panhandle with a load, and, well, he's got quite a story to tell about the following two weeks and more. He's been working relief supplies shuttles out of a FEMA staging area in Mariana, Florida. Here's Philman. Sitting down here in... Mariana at the moment. You know, is Mariana um, a place where you've been uh, doing doing a lot of delivery or pickup? Uh, yeah, yeah. I've been uh, I've been working pretty good for the last sixteen days. Um, I've started Monday, following the Monday following the storm hit. Okay. And uh, been pretty busy. Now, uh, Mariana. Is uh, north of Panama City, about seventy miles. Sure. Kind of a central location. We've been running all the Florida relief efforts out of here, pretty much. And that's kind of where the uh, that's where uh, FEMA staging area, basically. Yeah, it's up here in the industrial park near the airport, and uh, it's housed <clears throat> all kinds of people. The uh, the cleanup crews, the uh, tree crews, are starting to migrate up here as well. They got a, uh, they're in a different location than what we are. Now you're an independent owner operator, and um, you work with uh, brokers typically. Are you coming to this operation via a brokerage contract with FEMA, or is that's right? Yeah, FEMA's got on this particular move. They got, I think they got four brokerages set up doing various okay. you know missions I'm, I'm involved with what's it's been turned into the state operation at, at this time and uh, where, where you you're hauling it sounds like you're hauling to a variety of locations down uh, along the coast and inland too correct yeah I haven't I haven't been into uh, into Fort uh, St. Joe or um, Mexico Beach. I've been primarily going into the uh, Panama City area and the surrounding up here in the Mariana areas. And uh, we'll take supplies out, but we have been taking supplies out to these pod units. They're point of deliveries, and uh, and then uh, the, whoever you know they came in, they open up at every morning at seven o'clock and then the local community comes in and gets whatever supplies they need to sustain, you know, the life. And uh yep. you know, that's what we did hard and heavy. Uh about it started about seventy two hours, I guess, after after the storm had hit because they gotta they gotta allow the uh, search and rescue to uh 
to do their thing, and then, and of course, they, a lot of there's a lot of uh, debris damage because this was a wind event. So, you know, sure. it was different than say Irma last year because there's so many downed trees. I mean, the, the town of Bristol, Florida, was totally cut off. They, you could not really? get in or out of Bristol. They had to cut it out. Simply because of the trees over the roads. Yeah, yeah and uh, the uh, local first responders, um, they weren't equipped uh, for what happened there, you know, and uh, so they had to wait for uh, the guard to come in and you know, make a lane basically. And that was that was a story all over because this area of the country is you know, it's it's just it's it's country folk and um, little towns spread all around and you know, so uh, even my where my family's from up in Georgia, southwest Georgia that's case little town up there called yeah. Georgia, they they had it roped off. You couldn't even get into it. Yeah, I'm seeing. Uh, you you mentioned to me uh, Donaldsonville, where I think your uh, said your grandparents' farm was up there. And, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm just looking at I'm looking at a map here, and it's not very far from where you are right now. No, about 35 miles. Yeah, I did a uh, when I when I got home the other night, <clears throat> the day the storm, because I drove across I-10 trying to get on the east side of the storm before it come through, and. Uh, <clears throat> It made landfall uh, by the time that I was coming through Mariana, and uh, I got on the other side of it. Got home about eight o'clock that night, and, and uh, home is in uh, kind of near Jacksonville, correct? That's right. Yeah, I'm about three and a half hours, about 200 miles east, and uh, I got home and I was looking at the coordinates of the storm, and uh, put the coordinates in my Google map, and it was three and a half miles from the farm, the center of the uh, coordinate. And I knew right then that, you know, there was going to be catastrophic damage up there because that they got 110-mile-an-hour winds up there. Right. And it just mowed it down. Have you seen anything like uh, uh, this one in, you know, past hurricanes? Uh, have you, you've done this before, I, I got the impression. Yeah, I've, I've been involved in I've been involved in FEMA relief or I should say disaster relief, not necessarily FEMA. I've been involved in all different scopes, you know, whether it's volunteer or I'm being compensated. But these wind damage storms are it's a different it's a different kind of damage. Like for instance, I was involved with Sandy when it came up, and uh, you know, on the Jersey Shore, it took a lot of damage there, but that wind field, and there's a difference between a 100-mile-an-hour wind and a 140-mile-an-hour wind. It's it's apples and oranges. It's kind of like it's kind of like when you compare in the air, temp, air temperature, and you're like, you know, there's a big difference between 85 degrees and 95 degrees. It's huge. Same thing with this wind field. You know, and uh, there really wasn't a lot of flooding. It was just, man, you you can actually see. I was talking to a sheriff, a deputy sheriff, a while ago, and uh, his home. He's local Jackson County here. His home is actually moved off the foundation. It didn't. 
It didn't blow it off, but it mm-hmm. moved it two foot, <laughs> two foot off the foundation. That's wild. And we're talking. And that's we're not, talking a cinder block home, man. We're not talking. Yeah, and that's not. <laughs> Yeah, and that's not floating off of the foundation. That's uh, blowing off of the foundation. That's blowing off. Good you know, Lord. I mean, you you're not going to stand in a 150 mile an hour wind. You're just not going to do it. Damn. Yeah, and it came so it came in so fast too that it it uh, it, it didn't die down. Uh, yeah. Well, no. until well inland, right? Yeah, it was moving. I think you're 20. 24, the forward speed was 20 or 25 mile an hour, which was good that it didn't hang around, you know, because if a storm like that would have been moving, say, 8 or 10 miles an hour, oh, man, it, it would be like a hurricane injury in terms of, death, you know, destruction. Did you, um, you know, in advance of, of Michael coming in, um, you know, how how much, how long in advance did you know that uh, this is where you were going to spend the next few weeks with him? Well, I I was out in Fort Worth, and I was I was loading to come to Florida, and I was watching okay. the storm, you know, two days in advance. I mean, people had people down here had plenty of notice that this storm was coming in. And they had a choice of either stay or, or leave. And unfortunately, the storm gained a lot of speed in terms of wind field. Yeah, the strength. Yeah. So, being a Floridian, I'm I'm going to, you know, where I live, I live 50 miles inland. And if I had a storm going to bear down on me direct, I'm staying home. 100, 130 mile an hour wind or lower, I'm staying home. Anything above that, I'm leaving. Yeah. Because the, yeah. the biggest the biggest problem is is people are afraid they can't get back home. You know? Right, and they'll be stuck out for for an unknown, uh, unfore- unforeseeable amount of time, right? But uh, you know, when you were out there in Fort Worth, had you were you already uh, Sort of, did you lay groundwork for um, working, uh, working the aftermath uh, with uh, doing what you're doing now, yeah. or, uh, or did that well, happen after uh, things came through? Yeah, that that happened after because of uh, they usually don't start setting. They they usually start setting equipment up two days prior, 48 hours out of a of a imminent landfall. And, mm-hmm. you know, so I knew they were getting assets ready, and they, they keep them outside the, the storm impact, and then they move them in after that. So I knew they were getting personnel ready and, and, and to go, but I was, you know, I couldn't make a commitment on it because, A, number one, I was, I was under a load, you know, totally unrelated. And yeah. I didn't know if I was going to be able to get on the east side of the storm when I left Fort Worth. And when I hit the state line, Florida state line, the, the morning of impact, you know, I was still, I was still 150 miles away from being cleared. And I will have to say there, I mean, I've driven through hurricanes before. Oh, I shouldn't I said that wrong. The, the outside of a hurricane, you know. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, there was a couple of times where I thought maybe 
should have done this. <laughs> you know? Right. But, uh, I noticed, uh, you know, one of the reasons I'm in touch with you today is because I happened to notice you uh, posting, you know, a picture of your current uh, screenshot of your current coordinates, uh, I guess, from your phone or something to Facebook. And you were right. You weren't you weren't in the middle of it, but you were definitely right down there where it was making landfall and it was uh, the rain bands were definitely around you. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. At that point in time, the. uh the traffic on Interstate 10 was pretty much just the FHP, the Highway Patrol that had been dispatched. They were out and about, and they were out. And I'll, I'll give a handout to uh, State of Florida, man. And they were they were out, and they were out full force, you know. And there was, man, there was there was a there was a family out on I-10, and what he was doing out there with his family, I have no idea, because he was in a four-year freeze, and the wind had. Wind had blown him off into the median, and they had rescued him. And uh, I saw that one. Uh, you know, it was uh, you know there was some wind gust, and uh, it was a pretty bad thunderstorm at that point compared to what I've seen. Now. Somebody from Minnesota right. might have seen it differently. <laughs> to the, were you under? Were you still under the load at that point, or had you already delivered yeah. on the other side? Yeah, I had. Yeah. I had a I had a load of steel on my trailer on my flatbed. I got it I got it delivered the next day in Orlando, and I pulled in and them guys are like, "What are you doing here?" And I'm like, "I uh, got this load coming in." They said, "Man, they called us and told us you weren't going to be here till Monday." <laughs> I said, <laughs> "I drove through yesterday and they're like, what? <laughs> yeah, I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> you made it." My wife wasn't too thrilled, though. She wasn't really happy with it. Don't ever do that yeah. again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I started calling my contacts, the people that I know that handle, you know, uh, this type of thing, because they, the way the way they do it, is my understanding, is that depending on whether it's a Gulf-based storm or an Atlantic-based storm or Pacific-based storm, or they use different... They use different logistics companies for different areas. Sure. They kind of spread it all around. So I knew it was coming up through the Gulf, so I placed some calls in, and uh, uh, you know we'll, we'll let you know. And, all right, you kind of watch the load board because the, the power only's coming in from the power uh, the power only's coming in from the private sector, uh, not not FEMA, but they were just they were hitting the boards like tons. I'm getting I'm getting because I posted my truck in the area, so I'm getting tons of phone calls from people. You know, I need this because they were relocating assets from Hurricane Florence and all of this. I, I but I see I couldn't do anything because I had to go. I had to drive up to the farm, our, our family farm, right. and and see what kind of damage we sustained up there. And then I was fortunate enough. Where you know, because usually if you don't get in on it the first 48 hours, you've missed the window because they've already secured all the trucks they need. So, but I was I was fortunate enough to get on it. Are you working your flatbed or are you uh, doing power only running trailer? Yeah, I'm just doing power only. on this. I mean, sure. uh, MREs and water and. Uh, 
essential, you know, baby so that, baby essentials and stuff like that. Yeah, so that so that kind of direct relief sort of uh, stuff. Exactly. We're talking about yeah, not, we're not talking about building materials and things of that nature. Yeah. 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 The, the build material that's going to be a delayed. That'll start yeah. hitting next spring. They got to get all these trees out of the way first. And they're going to be doing that for a couple of years, at least a year, I know of. It's going to take them a while to clean up the area. Because it's so, the area is so long. I mean, you're talking from the coastline, a 30 mile wide window that stretches probably, you know, I would say stretches all the way up toward Albany, Georgia. On the on the family the family farm up there, it's uh, the grand the grandkids. You know we okay. we we kind of maintain it and uh, the uh, gotcha. the structures were still there um, when the storm hit. The home and the barn stood the wind, and they were built in '42. But uh, the smaller structures they they got they got tossed around, and um, you know we got I think we got. Total of 15 trees down, sorted pine. We got there's a 40 foot pine come down, and it it came down weird. It laid down in the middle of the pasture. There's a forest line, and it laid down in the pasture, and it laid down to huh. the root. Usually these pines they snap about halfway up, but this right. this this thing unrooted like an oak tree. It's kind of weird, and uh, but the and, and it laid east because apparently yeah. the east the east wind loosened it up and then when the uh west side of the storm came over it just took it right on over but uh there wasn't any loss of life or anybody was hurt and that was good, good. we're gonna have to we're gonna have to take the house down because it's unlivable now yeah, but a tree didn't fall under anything it's just water damage you know it's one in typical old farmhouses wooden frame yeah. with the uh metal roof and pecan trees all around it. That's going to be a tough day. Uh, but I tell you well, something else, Todd. You know, you, you, I've been I've been doing this now for 16 days, and I've done it before. You know, I've, I've, I've done it before. But, man, after you're around, you see these people's faces, you know, and you can just see the – you can just see the anguish on them, and their life has been totally – upended overnight within a matter of hours you know they went from you know having having things going on and then all of a sudden not only do we not have power and water we got a tree in our living room you know i went into a pod the other day people coming in there with their kids you know it's just bad man I know it. Um, I've, I've talked to other people that do that um, get involved with these kind of shuttling uh, missions that, that you're like this that you're on, and they often do remark uh, similarly. Uh, but at the same time, there's a little there's a little saving grace to it all, and that it's uh, it makes them uh, feel good when when they get to really see that they're sort of participating in this effort to sort of bring a little bit of uh, relief to folks, you know, and sometimes it, a lot of times it comes, that comes down to personal interactions that they have. 
uh, with yeah. people out yeah. there, you know. I was at a place uh, here recently, and um, I was I had to go in and get a trailer. You know, people are coming in in their vehicles yeah. and whatnot. And this, this one little guy, he was probably six years old and, and uh, five or six, and his mom had him in tow. And he was looking at my truck, you know, and he goes, "Man, that thing's a pretty truck," you know. Hmm. <laughs> I said, yeah, she was just kind of, she looked like she's worn, she's worn frazzled, you know. I was showing yeah. him the truck, and he just thought that was just the biggest thing, you know. So, you yeah. know, cool. I remember being that age looking at trucks, and, you know, it's, I don't know what their situation was. I didn't even ask, you know. I just right. spent five minutes with that kid, you know. Time well spent, seems like. Yeah. What uh, what kind of hours are you putting in um, on this on this kind of a kind of an effort, Tim? Well, initially, uh, initially it's just twenty four seven, man. You you, you yeah. come in, you go out, you come in, you go out, you you, you stage for what they call a mission, and uh, you know uh, you know you're you I, I've gotten woke up. You know, two o'clock in the morning. Hey, man, we got, we need you to go here, there, yonder. You know, right. and then the longer, the longer out it gets, you know, the more sporadic that gets. But your your uh, your position to go, you know, let me get my shoes on and I'm I'm out of here. You know, uh, it's not like we're hung up over at a truck stop somewhere and they call us on the phone. No, we're sitting. Staged area, ready to go. You know, and uh, you know once that once that initial relief is over with, then they, you know, the uh, the point of delivery places they start calling in, and you know, okay, we're we're starting. You know, we got power. The first signal is is when power is restored. Once power is restored, then people have access to the basic essentials which is number one water you know and that's that's the biggest thing is they get water um, you know and it's a it's done in stages they have to they have to get the metropolitan areas the cities they got to get them restored first and then they start from there and they start radiusing out into the uh, suburbs and then they go out into the rural and uh, I think at this point, um, there's, I, I would say that power has been restored in the whole region. I would say it's got to be close to 90% now, if not higher. Did you work um, any of the hurricanes that hit Florida last year? No, I didn't because Irma come right across the top of my home. I was hunkered down and... Uh, me and my neighbor, he, he's a concrete guy. He brought his equipment home and we dug our road out so we could get in and out. We had trees down over our road. I sat on my porch the next day listening to uh, water rescues with airboats down in Black Creek. That ain't never happened. Downtown Middleburg, which is an unincorporated town that I live in, um, it had three foot of water in downtown and that ain't never happened in a hundred years. So uh, they're still they're still uh, 
blue tarps on the roof where I live. And that wasn't even a bad wind event like this one. That was a flood event. But yeah, yeah I missed I missed to all of that last year because it, it hit me, you know. Yeah. Couldn't very well tell my wife, well, honey, we'll see you later. I'm going to go we'll get to work. Yeah, that wasn't working. <laughs> have, have you been home much? No. Oh, hadn't been home yet. I told you. I told my wife, I said, I'll probably see you Thanksgiving. <laughs> she said, okay, well, no, um, here's your clothes. <laughs> how, how, does it, how does it end up, um, I mean, how are you compensated ultimately? Is it like a lump sum for the entire amount of time or what? They're starting to break it up into uh, weekly spans. Okay, right. You know? And uh, that's typically the way it's done. Is, you're basically uh, just you're committing you you're committing yourself and and your truck to this operation for, you know for for week for weeks at a time right yeah start to finish exclusive use you know because yep. you yep. got to check in and you got to sign they sign you in wherever you go you get signed in and signed out so they keep track of the people trying to hide you know they just want to come over here and make money and not do the work and you have those. So I'm not one of those. Yeah, they just see it as a Ponzi scheme, and that's a shame because you're here to do a service for the community while being oh, compensated. Yeah. And FEMA, FEMA has come a long way from when I first started doing it, you know, back in the mid-90s. Man, they, they, they got this operation down, and I even have to say that I think in the past couple of years, the FEMA operations have change for the good in terms of operational standpoint they, they uh, I don't know where the, what the different focus is but it's got to come from the top down I'm sure 